From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, August 16th. I'm Marco Werman. Assange gets asylum from Ecuador, but Britain still wants to extradite the WikiLeaks founder. The harboring of alleged criminals or frustrating the due legal process is not a permitted function of diplomats under the Vienna Convention. And later, how the outcry over three jailed Russian rockers could help the Kremlin. I feel like ordinary Russians feel alienated by the degree of attention that this issue has gotten. And in a perverse way, it can strengthen support for Putin. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Ecuador granted political asylum today to Julian Assange, but that's not the end of Assange's effort to avoid extradition from Britain to Sweden, where he's wanted for questioning in two sexual assault cases. The WikiLeaks founder remains holed up inside Ecuador's embassy in London, and the British government is refusing to allow him safe passage out of the country. This afternoon, British Foreign Secretary William Hague said the two-month-old standoff is by no means over. Diplomatic immunity exists to allow embassies and diplomats to exercise proper diplomatic functions. And the harboring of alleged criminals or frustrating the due legal process in a country, in the host state, is not a permitted function uh, of diplomats under the Vienna Convention. And so the difficulty with international law is on the Ecuadorian uh, side. We've explained the full legal context. It could go on for a long time. British Foreign Secretary William Hague there. Paul Sony is in London covering the Assange saga for the Wall Street Journal. Paul, uh, the Vienna Convention Mr. Hague referred to there uh, is a pretty obscure thing codifying the rules of diplomatic immunity. What's been the general reaction there in London to this threat of British authorities storming the embassy of a sovereign nation? Yeah, so actually William Hague was specifically asked that today by journalists, and he backed off and said, listen, we haven't leveled any threat about storming the embassy. What we have done is pointed out to the Ecuadorian authorities that we do have this legal option, which allows us to essentially revoke um, territorial immunity for an embassy if we feel that an embassy is not being used for proper diplomatic purposes. And the reason that that law was put into place here in the UK in 1987 was because the Libyan embassy, um, there was a siege there in 1984 after a British police officer was shot outside from a bullet that came from the Libyan embassy. Mm. And after that incident happened, the UK passed a law which essentially allows the government to revoke 
that convention that allows diplomatic immunity or territorial immunity for an embassy if they feel that the embassy is not being used for proper diplomatic purposes. Are, are there any countries around the world that you know of that have a similar law? I mean, what have legal experts uh, told you so far about the seeming willingness by Britain to storm uh, the, the embassy there? Yeah, well, legal experts have said that they do not expect the UK can do that um, and, and that Julian Assange would have a strong case for um, judicial review, which is essentially when you uh, think that a law is not being applied uh, properly here in the UK, you can appeal to the courts, which would start yet another round mm. of um, court deliberations. But my sense, and I think, I don't know if you felt the same way from what William Haig said, was that this is going to be yet another waiting game. They're not in a rush. They're going to re-engage the Ecuadorian government, and you know, then they're going to wait it out. It's yet another game of chicken. So, I mean, let's remind listeners that Assange was responsible for thousands of sensitive U.S. documents being published on his WikiLeaks website in 2010, and they included, of course, American diplomatic and military secrets, of course, and he sought refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in in London to avoid being extradited to Sweden, which he fears would possibly lead to a U.S. extradition. So what are the likely next steps in, in this odd case, aside from more waiting game? Yeah, I think that's what we're going to see. You're going to probably see more waiting game. um, And then at some point, probably someone is going to have to act. Um, So that's either going to mean the UK exercising this legal option that that William Haig claims they have to arrest him on the territory of the embassy if they so choose, or um, maybe... Assange trying to find some way to get to Ecuador and that being impeded in some fashion, or the Ecuadorian government sort of uh, throwing up its hands and saying, listen, well, you know, we wanted to do this, but we're not going to be able to do it logistically. The other possibilities are that the Ecuadorian ambassador could be expelled from the UK. UK could recall its ambassador from Ecuador. Also, Sweden's foreign ministry has summoned the Ecuadorian ambassador to Stockholm. So I think it could definitely escalate from here. Have you heard anything about Julian Assange's current state of mind with, with this kind of limbo zone happening at the Ecuadorian embassy for him? You know, he is supposedly going to be making some sort of public statement uh, at the embassy on Sunday. So I think that will definitely be the first time that we get some insight into uh, what his life has been like now. And just describe that part of London, what it looks right now, this uh, Ecuadorian embassy across from Harrods. Is it just a constant crush of cars and traffic jams right now? No. So it's actually, it's on a side street. It's probably a five or six story uh, brick building with these white balconies off the sides. Um, And it's in Knightsbridge, as you said, across the street from Harwich, which is one of the nicest areas of London. So uh, the question, obviously, on Sunday, if he plans to make a public statement is, you know, obviously he can't step off the territory of the embassy because there are police officers who have been waiting there. So um, I guess he will make some sort of statement from the balcony, which just adds to the level of drama that this whole saga has already entailed. Paul Sony, a London-based reporter with The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much. Yep, thank you. For reaction from Ecuador, we're joined now by Paul Mena, a frequent contributor to BBC Mundo, the BBC Spanish language service. Paul, you spoke today with Ecuador's foreign minister, Ricardo Petino. What did he have to say about the Assange affair? Well, uh, he says that Ecuador is trying to get a coalition of support together among Latin American nations for the decision to offer asylum to Assange. So a coalition of support uh, among Latin American nations uh, for uh, the Ecuadorian decision to offer asylum to Assange. Are there Latin American nations that have uh, a hunger to do that? I mean, uh, regarding what the foreign minister told me in the interview, he says that he has received the support of uh, countries like Argentina, um, Bolivia, Venezuela. 
Do, do you think the Ecuadorian government uh, anticipated that, that this decision would lead to such a huge diplomatic incident? I mean, I, I guess yes, uh, because uh, the Ecuadorian government has been uh, discussing this issue for almost two months. Mm. So I think that uh, they have tried to to have all of the the all, all knowledge knowledge about what could happen with this kind of decision. So uh, Ecuador's president Rafael Correa is up for re-election early next year. Is there a feeling there? in Quito, that this incident could be more about domestic politics rather than a real belief in the cause of Julian Assange? Yeah, I would say that the two issues are in play now. Um, uh, For sure, the Assange asylum uh, topic is going to be one of the issues in the next months in terms of political disputes here in, in Ecuador. Paul Mena, a journalist based in Quito, Ecuador. He works for BBC Mundo and other international outlets. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. Thank you very much. For more of our coverage of the Assange case and WikiLeaks, including a timeline of events from our partners at the BBC, just go to theworld.org. In Russia, three members of punk collective Pussy Riot face sentencing in a Moscow court tomorrow. The three women have been in jail since February. That's when they broke into a Moscow cathedral and performed a punk prayer at the altar in a protest against Russian leader Vladimir Putin. The women could spend up to seven years in prison if convicted on charges of hooliganism. Several top Western musicians, including Paul McCartney and Madonna, have expressed support for the jailed Pussy Riot rockers. But not everyone thinks the international outcry over their plight is especially helpful. Among them is Russian-American singer and writer Alina Simone, who lives in New York. It's definitely become a very sexy issue. And it seems like the kind of thing that can mobilize a lot of people's interest across a lot of different sectors because it's got a rock and roll component and everyone loves rock and roll and it's got a fashion component and it's got sort of these far-reaching aspects that go beyond just politics to interest celebrities and interest people from a lot of different sectors. So I guess in a way it's not surprising that it's become more attractive than other issues that are maybe more boring and more thorny. Like what? Like any number of issues. I mean, I think that the ways that the Russian government has been going after opposition activists throughout the Putin years have been in pretty bureaucratic, opaque ways through allegations of tax issues, you know, misappropriating funds, embezzlement, like Alexander Navalny right now is being accused of embezzling money from some sort of timber concern. And who is Navalny? Remind us. Uh, Well, he's a huge anti-corruption activist in Russia, a leading opposition figure. And these issues are considerably more boring, less sexy, more difficult to understand. It's really unlikely that Madonna is going to scrawl, you know, (laughs) Navalny's name across her back, though. Who knows? She did that for Pussy Riot. She did that for Pussy Riot. And I think that there are other issues out there that and other activists out there that have kind of a more boring and difficult to understand story that could never hope to get this kind of attention. I feel like Americans hear all this stuff in the news about Pussy Riot and they think they know what's going on in Russia and they really, really don't. And it's important to keep reminding ourselves we don't live in this country. We don't really know what's going on politically, socially, culturally, this is just one hot button issue that's risen to the surface for a variety of reasons. And it's overshadowed everything else in a way that can be dangerous. 
Now, the Russians in Russia that you speak with, do they feel the same way? Do they feel that there are a lot of things uh, in Russia that need more attention, but that the Pussy Riot story is sucking the air out of them? Well, I worked in international development in Russia on and off for six years, and I spent a lot of time in the provinces far away from Moscow working with nonprofits. And I've got friends that still work in that sector who are pretty frustrated because they feel like it's become very difficult to get international attention for issues that affect the lives of ordinary Russians. Give me an example of, uh, of an issue that they may have come across or that you came across. Well, one issue that a friend of mine wrote to me about was, for example, treating women prisoners for breast cancer, that there's very little medical care available for you know people who are in prison justly or unjustly. They're deprived of medical care and that their two or three year sentence becomes de facto a life sentence. But it's the sort of issue that is never going to attract this kind of attention, but you know people's lives are on the line. And so I think that though I very much hope that they release Pussy Riot and I do support the cause of letting them go, I think that it's terrible that they've been held for this long. There's a part of me that wishes that we could devote just even a quarter of the political or social capital we've devoted to this issue, to issues that actually affect the lives of ordinary Russians. And in part, it's because I, I feel like ordinary Russians feel alienated by the degree of attention that this issue has gotten, given that it's not really their daily concern. And it creates a backlash and sort of this knee-jerk reaction of, you know, why you know, why are these musicians coming and talking about politics at these concerts in mm. Russia? We just want to hear their music. They're telling us how to run our country. And and in a perverse way, it can strengthen support for Putin. So, Alina, Simone, what is this trial and the verdict, tomorrow's verdict, uh, about for you? Well, for me, I think it's it, they're just sending a message to opposition activists. And it's been consistent with the message that they've been sending, you know, since Putin became president, which is that, they should keep their mouths shut. And that, that to me is what's really disturbing about the Pussy Riot trial. Russian-American singer and writer Alina Simone, thank you very much. Thanks, Marco. PRI's The World is More Than a Radio Program. Theworld.org unlocks global journalism with full access to thousands of stories, pictures, videos, and podcasts. That's at theworld.org. The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Haitian government is looking for some help in Washington. It's hired a former Clinton administration trade official as a lobbyist. The aim is to drum up more political and financial support for Haiti. The country is still reeling from the January 2010 earthquake. Hundreds of thousands continue to live in tents and temporary housing. Many schools and universities haven't reopened. And cholera remains a chronic concern. So many Haitians opt to migrate. One popular destination has been Brazil. But it's not as easy for Haitian migrants to get into Brazil as it used to be. Mitra Taj reports from a town in Peru, just across the Brazilian border. Just after dawn in the Peruvian town of Inapari, a few Haitians pray by the Acre River in the Amazon. They share a book called Songs of Hope. Ahead of them, just past the muddy river, stretches Brazil. This is our problem, says Wisnel Amiciel. Brazil still hasn't accepted us, still hasn't given us visas. 
but we are still waiting, with hope. Amisael is one of a hundred Haitians stuck in this quiet border town. He says life in Haiti is hard, and he's traveled through four countries to get here. More than 4,000 Haitians have moved to Brazil since the earthquake. Brazil is now the world's sixth largest economy, and it's struggling to define its immigration policy. It's been alternately closing and opening its borders to Haitians as it tries to balance humanitarian concerns with a selective approach to migrants. In the meantime, hundreds of Haitians wait on the border. Most of the Haitians in Inyapari are bunking in an empty government building. Junior St. John offers a tour. A few bare rooms where the migrants sleep in rows on the floor. Rice and bananas cooking over a fire in the overgrown garden. And a newborn baby born in Ecuador on the way here. The Haitians have been here for three months. They say they paid smugglers more than $3,000 to help them get here. They were promised it would be easy to go to Brazil once they'd arrived. Now they warn relatives not to come. Because in the 21st century, human beings shouldn't live like this. I know what rights human beings have. Damiao Borges shows up to check on the migrants. He works for the government human rights agency in the neighboring Brazilian state of Acre. This is a big problem right now. The government of Brazil doesn't want to let them come in anymore. In January, Brazil announced it would only allow in 100 Haitians per month, flying directly from Port-au-Prince. The idea was to attract more professionals and fewer unskilled immigrants and to discourage the dangerous land journey. But Haitians kept showing up. So after that, Brazil let more come in. It let 243 in at first, and 130 more showed up. They were stuck here for two months, and again, there was pressure to let them in. They let them in, and now there are 102 here. It's unclear whether Brazil's government will make another exception for this group. St. John and the others say they're hungry and depressed and long to start their new lives. I want to work and finish my studies. I don't want my daughter to go through what I've been through. Some say letting Haitians work in richer countries could be the best way to help their country rebuild. The World Bank estimates the Haitian diaspora, mostly in the United States, sent home $1.5 billion in 2010, more than what the U.S. has given in post-quake aid so far. And Borges says Brazil needs Haitian workers. As soon as they arrive, the companies are calling me. They call me from Sao Paulo, from Rio, and I send them everywhere. There's work for everyone. There are jobs to prepare for the World Cup in 2014, but work isn't the only draw for the Haitians. Brazil has a large black and racially mixed population. St. John says they won't have to deal with the kind of racism they've come across in Peru. Last night there was a soccer game and we went to watch it on TV at a restaurant. And when the owner saw five or six of us Haitians, she turned off the TV. That made me very sad. Inyapari mayor Celso Curry says Brazil's mixed message has become a burden for his town of 1,200. Every time Brazil closes its border, the town's population swells with Haitians. When they're allowed to cross, more take their place. The first time we gave them food and shelter, he says. The second time also. But you can't help forever. We need to focus on other things. Water only runs in Inupari three hours a day. And this evening, like most, the Haitians head to the Acre River for a bath. 
literally in the middle of the border that separates them from Brazil. And for a few moments, the border seems like just another river. For the world, I'm Mitra Taj, Inyapari, Peru. Now, a river in Brazil also runs through today's GeoQuiz. And this quiz might come in handy if you like to do crossword puzzles. The river we want you to name is a five-letter word that begins with X. The river in question is located in northern Brazil. It's 1,200 miles long and feeds into the Amazon. Last year, engineers began constructing a massive dam on this river. It's called the Belo Monte Dam. The $11 billion project has plenty of opponents. They include indigenous people who would be displaced by flooding. Some critics say it's a case of natives versus exploiters. That's reminiscent of the film Avatar. Now the construction has come to a screeching halt. We'll tell you why and name this Brazilian river later in the program. Before we head into the break, we were struck by this story of a Spanish mayor. His name is Juan Manuel Sanchez Gordillo, and he's been dubbed the Spanish Robin Hood. The mayor has staged raids on supermarkets and handed out food to the poor. Now he's begun a three-week march across Andalusia to get the government to back off on austerity measures. Spain's in a lot of economic trouble. Its banks need bailing out. Unemployment is running nearly 25 percent, and thousands are losing their homes. During his three-week walk, Sanchez Gordillo plans to urge other mayors to reject austerity. He wants them to skip debt payments and stop evictions. And he's getting a lot of media attention. But Spain's conservative government is no fan. A spokesman for the ruling People's Party said officials shouldn't be flouting the law. He added, you can't be Robin Hood and the sheriff of Nottingham at the same time. This guy has been not seen publicly for 56 days. The government started out saying, oh, he's fine. He's in his office doing his job. And then over the weeks, it's now come down to he's recovering from treatment. But no one knows the treatment. No one knows where. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Islamic militants attacked a Pakistani airbase early today. The base is believed to house nuclear weapons. The attack was repelled, and it seems all the gunmen were killed. But the base took some damage. Flames and smoke could be seen rising from the airfield, and the base commander himself was reported to be wounded. Blake Hounschel is managing editor of Foreign Policy magazine. He's in Washington. Blake, what do we know about who carried out today's attacks and why? Well, it looks by all accounts to be the Pakistani Taliban, which has been issuing threats um, to launch some kind of spectacular attack. Uh, there's been a red alert in Pakistan for several days. Uh, you know, the, the military should have seen something coming. 
and the Taliban all, uh, also took credit for the attack afterwards. Um, you know, this is the separate Pakistan-based branch. They're based in the tribal areas, and um, instead of being active in Afghanistan, they are attacking the Pakistani state and have been for years. Mm. So this wasn't totally unexpected, but this base, many experts suggest, is home to some of Pakistan's nuclear weapons. Uh, One aircraft was damaged in the raid. Uh, But do we know whether any nukes were compromised? Well, Pakistan has always denied and continues to deny that it has nuclear uh, assets at that base. But outside experts uh, do believe that there are nuclear weapons there. Um, Pakistan also says that its nuclear weapons are not stored ready to go. In other words, different parts of different components uh, are stored separately for safety reasons. You know, having said that, this is pretty alarming that despite the red alert, you could send a half a dozen militants in to a secure facility, which, you know, is surrounded by kind of no man's land areas. It seems like they snuck in through a sympathetic village. Some were said to have been wearing military uniforms. It's alarming in a country that, uh, you know, continues to keep people like me up at night. Mm. I mean, it's hard to say why they attacked this specific base. But from what you and other experts know of Pakistan's military bases, how hard would it have been for attackers to, you know, walk away with a nuke? I think it would be pretty hard, and and I do think there is a pretty clear motive here, which is revenge. Uh, in, in the statement that the Pakistani Taliban issued, they said it was revenge for killing their brothers in, in the tribal areas. Uh, this is an air base, keep in mind, so there are airstrikes launched by the Pakistani Air Force from this base. Mm. Um, there may have even been you know, drone strikes by the U.S. in the past. I don't think it's going on now. So they, they were attempting to blow up you know, Pakistani Air Force planes. And, uh, you know, by all accounts, they were getting close to doing so. And this is similar to an incident that happened several months ago in Karachi, at a naval base, where militants were able to actually damage a couple planes. There's a big backstory here with a lot of talk about the Pakistani military launching an assault on the militant stronghold of North Waziristan. Could this insurgent attack today be some kind of spoiler? Well, I think it's an attempt to show, in part, that the military will pay a high price if it wants to go into North Waziristan. But now it's become a, an issue of credibility for the Pakistani military, and they, they can't very well back down in the face of you know, half a dozen guys. I mean, the Americans have long been pushing for some kind of move against North Waziristan, since it is a stronghold for many Afghan insurgents and the rump of al-Qaeda. But with the Afghan war winding down, isn't that a bit late? I think it's also very unlikely. Um, General Kayani, the, the head of the Pakistani military, recently gave a speech where he tried to cast these upcoming operations that have been rumored as Pakistan's own war. And this is very important politically because the charge from the militants and their allies in Pakistani politics has been that the Pakistani military has been fighting America's war. And the the leadership of the military is very sensitive to that charge. It's a very nationalistic political environment. And they don't want to be seen as doing Uncle Sam's bidding. Blake Hounshill with Foreign Policy Magazine. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
That attack today has many fearing for the safety of Pakistan's nuclear weapons. In Israel, it's the status of Iran's nuclear program that keeps many people up at night. Israeli leaders have threatened to bomb Iran to prevent a potential attack. The Israeli debate over whether or not to bomb has, in fact, reached a fever pitch lately. And as Daniel Estrin reports from Jerusalem, the country is bracing itself. I got a flyer in my mailbox a few days ago. It said, this is the absolute last chance to pick up your gas mask. Don't be left unprotected. Get your gas mask today at a local Jerusalem mall. So today, I went to the mall. About 50 people were waiting in line. Some had been there for hours. Why are you picking up a gas mask? In case of emergency, like war, with Iran, with Syria, I don't know. You don't look very nervous. No, I'm fine. No, it's just my wife. She wanted For me, I don't care. I know nothing going to happen. They can't mess with Israel. It's not a joke. As parents, you feel that you need to be responsible. So you take the necessary precautions, but otherwise, you know, it's life as usual. Better to be safe than sorry. There are other signs that Israel is preparing itself for war. This week, the army sent text messages to people across the country, testing its alert system in case officials need to warn civilians about incoming missiles. Tel Aviv's City Hall says it has designated 60 underground parking garages as makeshift bomb shelters. Even Israel's main TV news channel says it's looking to build an underground studio to continue broadcasts during wartime. All of this comes as Israeli officials ratchet up their rhetoric about the dangers of a nuclear Iran. Here's Israel's ambassador to the U.S., Michael Oren, speaking yesterday to Bloomberg News. Just today, an Iranian general came out and pledged to wipe Israel off the map, and diplomacy hasn't succeeded. So we've come to a, a very critical juncture where important decisions do have to be made. The outgoing minister in charge of the military's home front command is saying Israel should expect a month-long war with hundreds or more of Israeli casualties. And an official who said he met this week with Israel's prime minister and defense minister says they intend to make a decision about an Iran strike before November. Pundits in Israel and a group of writers and intellectuals are accusing Israel's leaders of warmongering. But today in Parliament, Defense Minister Ehud Barak defended the deliberations. The Defense Minister said, There isn't a subject in the last generation, not a matter of peace or war, that's been discussed in more depth and with such attention and even transparency as the Iran question has. Israel seems poised for an attack. But the one thing missing is U.S. support, implicit or explicit. Israeli papers report that Netanyahu is willing to back off on an attack if Obama promises to publicly state that the U.S. will attack Iran if it must. Israeli officials refuse to confirm or deny such a request has been made to the Obama administration. Israeli military historian Martin Van Creveld says Netanyahu and Obama are engaged in a very complicated dance. They don't trust each other. They hate each other. They lose each other. Which makes communication very difficult. Because on the one hand, if you're Netanyahu, uh, how do you stoke the flames without going too far? And if you are uh, Obama, how do you restrain Netanyahu without telling the Iranians you're off the hook? The crux of this debate is this. Does a nuclear Iran pose an existential threat to Israel? Some Israeli leaders say yes. 
Israeli military historian Van Krevald says no. Israel is believed to be a nuclear power, he says, and no nuclear power has ever nuked another nuclear power, not even the most ruthless dictators. The very real threat, Van Krevald says, is what could happen if Israel attacks Iran. Iran could respond with a constant stream of missiles for a very long time, and Israel's economy could grind to a halt. One missile a day, two missile a day, then a pause, then another one, just enough to keep Israel semi-paralyzed. Falling one here, one there, very unpredictable. This could be the end of Israel. That one missile a day scenario is just one of many wartime possibilities that experts here are proposing. Tomorrow and the next day, we'll probably hear a dozen more. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Gas masks handed out at a Jerusalem mall. Check out Daniel's slideshow at theworld.org. The answer to our geoquiz today flows through the Amazon rainforest. That's where construction on the massive Belo Monte Dam project has come to a screeching halt. A Brazilian court ordered the suspension of work. If it does get completed, the Belo Monte Dam would be the third biggest in the world, flooding 200 square miles of the Amazon. Zachary Hurwitz with International Rivers joins us now. Zachary, help us out with the geography first here. What river is being dammed and what part of Brazil's Amazon are we talking about specifically? So the the plans call for a dam across the Xingu River, and the Xingu is one of the main tributaries to the Amazon. This is in Brazil's northern region, as they call it, in the state of Pará. Right. So the Xingu River, that's X-I-N-G-U, which uh, flows south from the main trunk of the Amazon. So the dam was approved by the Brazilian Congress in 2005. Construction has been underway for a year. Why did the court pull the plug in Brazil? Well, the court decided to pull the plug because they had found on two occasions that Congress approved the project illegally. On one occasion, a decision from the Supreme Court in 2005 did not receive two-thirds voting. Uh, And on the second occasion, the Congress had approved a decree in 2005 to approve the project without having done prior consultations with the uh, indigenous tribes to be affected. Can you describe the dam project for us? Uh, What what would it look like? Well, this is a dam that, like you said, would be the third largest in the world. There would be two major dam walls, one at a site called Pimentel, which would divert 80% of the Shingu River into a huge reservoir. That water would then head towards a powerhouse at a second uh, dam wall at the Bellamarch site. And altogether, we're talking about the first dam covering six kilometers long. You know, a lot of area would be flooded. Uh, Most of the impacts are away from indigenous people's lands, but the downstream side of the dam would dry out the Shingu River. This is the area where where the impacts would be felt. What are the indigenous groups that uh, now seemingly have a voice in in how this uh, big infrastructure project is going to go? There are three tribes located downstream in the area of impacts of the dam. The first is called the Juruna tribe, the second called the Arara tribe, and then the third are a group called the Xikrin do Cayapo, and those are a variant of the Cayapo tribe, one of the most important and visual tribes in in Brazil. Is there any way that they're actually going to be able to dialogue with authorities and say, we don't want this dam here? That remains to be seen. We've received a lot of vindication from tribes that they're very jubilant about this decision, but everybody's waiting to see really what happens. Uh, The history of the project is that 
the Brazilian judiciary has overturned many of its own decisions um, in the past, and, and tribes have uh, attempted to dialogue with both the developer, Norte Energia, as well as the government, uh, but so far those dialogues have failed. A lot of the tribes have, have reached a very desperate point. Uh, there were major protests uh, on the heels of the Rio Plus 20 conference in June. Uh, tribes occupied the, the construction site for a good 20 days. And then most recently, one of the tribes detained three engineers from the developers consortium over a few cases where the developer had failed to implement the mitigation plan properly. So this project is riddled with problems and tribes, it sounds like, are taking this with a grain of salt. You know, I saw filmmaker James Cameron and actor uh, Sigourney Weaver have thrown their support behind the locals, drawing you know, to the parallels of the Amazon story with, with Avatar, the movie they made. Did that help the locals at all? I think it drew a lot of attention to the cause. James Cameron, Sigourney Weaver, uh, also Brazilian celebrities, uh, some of the m most important Brazilian celebrities, uh, have also thrown their support behind the tribes. So it does help uh, raise the issue, but, but I still think that you know, the legal situation in Brazil is so tricky and so mm. politicized that the developer will probably appeal this decision. And that appeal is likely to go to either the president of this regional uh, court or it may even go to the Supreme Court. So we'll see what happens. But there may be a good chance that this project can be stopped. Zachary Hurwitz with International Rivers based in Berkeley, California. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Marco. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Ethiopia has its own Jesse Jackson Jr. story. It's a politician gone missing. But in this case, it's the prime minister. Ethiopia's premier, Melis Zenawi, hasn't been seen in public since June 26th. And though we've now been told where Jesse Jackson Jr. is, at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, where he's apparently being treated for bipolar disorder, Ethiopians still don't know where their prime minister is. The world's Carol Hills has been following the story. Carol, what's going on? Well, it's kind of an odd case. This guy has been not seen publicly for 56 days. The government keeps saying he's fine. They started out saying, oh, he's fine. He's in his office doing his job. And then over the weeks, it's now come down to he's recovering from a treatment. But no one knows the treatment. No one knows where. So there's lots of speculation that he could be in Belgium or Germany receiving treatment. Some opposition people, and there are a lot of opposition to Zanawi say, oh, he's dead. But there's no confirmation of anything, and basically people just don't know. Very bizarre. Now, Prime Minister Mela Zanawi has been in politics for 20 years. He's a big figure in Ethiopian politics. Remind us who he is. He is a huge figure in Ethiopia. He was part of the rebel group that overthrew Mengistu in 1991. Since then, he's been president for five years. Since 2005, he's been prime minister. So he's just a fixture, and he's someone who... A lot of foreign countries look to as somebody who's overseen lots of economic growth. But critics say he won't brook any kind of free press. Lots of people go to jail, and there's lots of human rights violations. So lots of different opinions about him, but he's a huge figure. Carol, you track political cartoons quite closely. Is a missing Ethiopian prime minister showing up in any of them? He's showing up in a few. And interestingly, I don't think any of the ones I've found are Ethiopian cartoonists. There's a Kenyan there's a Kenyan cartoonist who has him in a hospital bed. 
with an inbox with lots of things piling up, and he's holding a gun to protect himself. There's there's another cartoon where he's in the hospital bed watching the Olympics, and of course, the Ethiopians did extremely well in track and field, mm. seven medals, and I must say, five of them by women. And you can see those cartoons at theworld.org. We'll stay on the case of the missing Ethiopian prime minister, the world's Carol Hills. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. Finally today, we preview a music festival taking place this weekend in Los Angeles. It features bands that play Son Jarocho, a fast-paced dance music from Veracruz, Mexico. Our frequent global hit contributor, Beto Arcos, tells us all about it. Son Jarocho is played in many different ways. There are groups that play the traditional approach, and there are groups that mix in different influences. Today we're going to talk about four different groups, and we're going to start with an amazing group, Pasumecha, based in Mexicali, Baja California, across the border from the U.S., and the key player here is El Godo, and he plays the instrument that is the cornerstone of the music, an instrument called the jarana, J-A-R-A-N-A. Here's El Godo with an incredible rendition of the tune called El Buscapies. The jarana is an eight-string instrument. It is carved out of one solid piece of wood, and there is nobody that plays the jarana quite like El Godo. Every year in Los Angeles, there's a gathering of Son Jarocho musicians. It's called Encuentro de Jaraneros. This year, it's the 11th annual Encuentro de Jaraneros, which literally means a meeting or a gathering of jarana players. It's a Son Jarocho festival in Los Angeles, and all of these groups from Southern California come together, and there's always groups that come from Mexico. Let's take a listen now to a group from Los Angeles that's been around for more than uh, 10, 15 years. It's a group called Quetzal. And their new recording called Imaginaries, they include a tune highly influenced, very much influenced by Son Jarocho. The tune is called Tragafuegos, Fire Breathers. Fuego, fuego, la lumbre en su dueño, en cada pecho arde lágrima, risas y un sueño. Fuego, la lumbre en su dueño, en cada pecho arde lágrima, risas y un sueño. The next band we're going to hear is an ensemble called Las Cafeteras. It's a seven-piece ensemble, Las Cafeteras. They're one of the newer groups in Son Jarocho in Los Angeles, and they mix it up. They mix it up with hip-hop. They mix it up with other stuff. Check this out. This is a tune called El Zapateado. It's one of the standards of Son Jarocho. The incredible thing about this particular tune and their own rendition is that this is only two chords that they're playing, but the intensity that they're playing with, you wouldn't know that. Check it out. (laughs) 
They put on an incredible show, Las Cafeteras. They're from Los Angeles as well, and one of the newer groups of Son Jarocho that are going to be performing at the 11th annual Son Jarocho Festival. And finally, I want to tell you about this incredible ensemble headed by Patricio Hidalgo, the heir to a family of Son Jarocho musicians that goes back generations. Patricio Hidalgo's recording is called El Regreso de la Conga, and here he fuses, he makes, a, he kind of creates this fusion between Son Jarocho and an Afro style, Afro-Cuban style called Conga. Let's check it out. Patricio Hidalgo and El Regreso de la Conga. Patricio Hidalgo, one of the great soneros, he's a fantastic musician, he's a great jarana player, and he's an amazing improviser of verses. And he's going to be performing this weekend in Los Angeles at the 11th annual Son Jarocho Festival, Encuentro de Jaraneros. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.